Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Happy Halloween, listeners. Not as in October 31st, but as in the new sequel to John Carpenter's 1978 classic that helped create the slasher genre as we know it today. I'm Aaron, and my regular co-host Patrick is off cruising in the sun, which I'm totally jealous of. But that gives us the opportunity to cover a horror film on the show that we may not otherwise have been able to do. Here with me for this rarity are the guys from the Fear of God podcast, Reed and Nathan. Hello, my friends. Hey, Aaron. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. It's been a long time coming. And I guess since Reed and Nathan are here, you could kind of call this a mashup of a special episode. We'll, we'll go with the Fear of the Feeling Film podcast. <laughs> I like it. That, that, that sounds a little better than Feeling God. I don't know. Somehow <laughs> oh, that yeah. one quite no, I, I tried that off. first and I was like, that just isn't going to cut it. I can't. <laughs> I'm glad you said it and not me. <laughs> that's what I'm, that, that's, I thought that's why you asked me to be here. <laughs> Well, guys, before we get into the movie, I have a couple quick announcements, and then I also wanted to have you introduce yourselves for our listeners who may not be familiar with your show yet. So let's do that. What is the Fear of God podcast and your approach on talking movies? Nathan, you want to take that or you want Go me ahead, to? Go ahead, Reed. Okay, so basically you can, you can we, <laughs> we, we converse every single week about the intersection between the horror genre and specifically the Christian faith, um, but it has very much uh, become sort of a conversation about faith in general. Um, obviously, Nathan and I are both uh, subscribed to the Judeo-Christian persuasion, but the conversation extends into socio-political issues. Um, we talk about each piece as a piece by itself, and then we unpack what it makes us feel and think about um, in broader areas, specifically centered around sort of a faithful living kind of conversation. But uh, we have a lot of fun and we have a lot of thoughtful, reflective conversation and uh, our listeners seem to enjoy it. And we certainly enjoy it. And uh, any potential new listeners, we hope and think they would enjoy it, too. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, definitely give a big thumbs up to the podcast um, big fan myself, and I awesome. like that you are dedicated to a genre because sometimes, you know, we want to go to someone who has a lot of knowledge in a specific genre. You can, you can actually get into films and, and dissect them in a little bit of a different manner that way when you have a lot of knowledge of one type of film to kind of compare against. Um, whereas like with us, we bounce around a lot. Uh, so if you're looking for a good horror podcast or horror based podcast, Check these guys out. They also dive into thrillers and a little bit less of the typical slasher type films as well. And gosh, he did like a whole series on monster movies at one point that was really great. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Well, announcements for us. I uh, just wanted to briefly plug last week. I dropped a mini sode with my interview uh, with Alex Honnold. That is the free climber, uh, the subject of the recent documentary free solo. Alex climbed the 3,200-foot-high peak uh, called El Capitan in Yosemite National Park uh, with no ropes. It's a pretty incredible story. Uh, the achievement is just a staggering one. And watching this documentary of the lead-up to this over about two years, uh, he, he gets into a relationship while he's training and planning to take this challenge on. He's being filmed by one of his best friends. It's 
it's crazy intense. It's very intimate and it's a very, very special documentary. It's, it's worth seeing on the big screen as well because of the visual, uh, look, the way the cameras are shooting the actual final ascent. Uh, but my interview with him was wonderful. He, he's a great guy. He's very down to earth. You'd never know that he was a millionaire. Uh, he still feels and sounds just like the guy that drives around in a van and doesn't care about anything but finding a good mountain to go climb. So check that out. Uh, it was a really great conversation and definitely one of the highlights of my podcasting career, so so to speak, so far. I also wanted to mention that uh, I recently appeared on the Next Best Picture podcast. So I talked a spoiler-free conversation there with Matt on that show about Beautiful Boy. That's based on the memoir, uh, dual memoirs, actually, by David and Nicholas Sheff about a teenage son who's struggling with drug addiction and a father who doesn't want to let him go. We had a really good talk, so love for you guys to check that out on the Next Best Picture podcast. With all that being said, uh, here's the spoiler alert. This is for Halloween, parentheses, 2018, parentheses. Uh, we're going to discuss this in depth. We are going to spoil the heck out of it. So if you haven't seen it, get thee to a theater. It's a great time in a theater. We will all probably agree on that. And it's definitely worth your money and your time. But if you haven't seen it, turn away and come back after you have. All right, guys. Well, time to dig in. And here on the show, we always like to start off with our one-word takeaways, and we like to let the guests go first. So, Nathan, why don't you share with us what your one-word takeaway is first and and take us away? Yeah, I really wanted to kind of have a little double meaning here. So my one-word takeaway for the 2018 iteration of Halloween was the word killer. Um, So uh, to unpack that a little bit, this... I, I'll use another big word here. This, this movie feels like the horror singularity for me. It's like two years of what we do over at the fear of God plus 20 years of friendship to read. Um, kind of all culminating in this, in this film. Um, <laughs> there was, there was, there was kind of a specialness to me to the watching of the film. Um, as well as at least my experience of it, a specialness to the film itself. Um, that kind of felt like, and, and Aaron, for your listeners and maybe even to you yourself, I've always been a fan, a, a casual fan, at least of the genre. Um, it was only really plugging in like I have with fear of God that really sort of enmeshed me in a rather <laughs> a robust way with genre. So this movie in particular, we covered the first, the 78 Halloween, our 10th episode. We're now at what, like 110. So this really felt like a culmination of all. I've loved, I really, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll find things that, um, you know, kind of, kind of nits we pick with this particular film, but the, the experience of watching this movie was thoroughly enjoyable to me. So I don't know, my one word takeaway was killer, which felt appropriate. It does. It certainly feels incredibly appropriate. Uh, Reed, what about you? Where'd you land? Similar to him, I wanted to have a bit of a double meaning with my one word takeaway, and I went with the word homecoming. Um, so obviously the tagline for the original 1978 film is the night he came home, he being Michael Myers with this new sequel, they were bringing back, uh, home as it were a few key original players, Nick Castle, Jamie Lee Curtis, PJ souls, and of course the big man himself, John Carpenter. And they were also bringing in a few key original strategies to kind of generate old school thrills. Uh, and I felt like it represented a real return to form for the franchise. The franchise had been muddled in some painful uh, and painfully complicated 
mythologies that they never really could substantiate to my liking, even as much as I love the franchise. So this sequel felt very much like we're just going to go back to basics and we're going to bring it all back home, as it were. And I feel like they really did that in a successful and satisfying way. So that's why my one word takeaway is homecoming. I like it. Uh, you know, I didn't know that tagline. So see, so you're already educating me on my oh, own. Oh, nice. So I love it. Yes. Um, you actually just said my one word takeaway in your last sentence. So that was a good oh. segue. Uh, my one word takeaway is satisfying. And the reason is because I, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, being someone who doesn't really love the classic films in this genre, I'll admit that I've never seen a single Friday the 13th movie, or at least not one that I remember seeing, you know, once I may have seen one when I was five or six years old or something crazy like that, but not as an adult. Um, I definitely respect them though. And what I got was a great theater experience that was fun and hilarious and entertaining. And it was a bit shocking here and there. And yet I was kind of surprised that it, it never really felt very scary to me. And so I would never call this a masterpiece. Uh, in my opinion, I don't think that it reaches greatness, but it was definitely satisfying and well worth the cost of a ticket. In my opinion, the first thing I want to hear about from you guys are your expectations going into this as fans of the series, as guys who have watched probably, I'm guessing all of them. I guess you can, you can tell me whether you have or not, but what I'd like to know is what did you need for you to consider this sequel to be successful? Like when you were going into this film, what were you looking for it to do? And that, how did it live up to that for you? Um, I'll, I'll start. Um, you know, for me, and and to inform your question a minute ago of of what amount of the franchise I've seen, um, I had seen the initial one, gosh, fifteen plus years ago, and then I rewatched it for fear of God. Well, then, honestly, a year ago, right now, uh, Reed and I watched, or he, you know, showed me uh, the second film, and then H two O, which is the twenty year anniversary film, late nineties. I don't. So those three, the original, the second, and then two O were the only ones I'd seen going into this. Um, and so for me, and, and this is kind of cool because hopefully my expectation, you know, we're, we're getting different vantage points on the same franchise and same, um, my expect, I didn't know what to expect. I will say that in the current phase of life I'm in, discretionary time is at a premium. So I, so there's this, unfortunate pressure that gets applied to the uh movie theater going experience so they're like man i really hope <laughs> i'm spending <laughs> my time well because i just don't i just don't know um exactly what's going to happen here and, and if i'm going to enjoy the film and is it going to just be one of those check the box kind of scenarios and right as i alluded to with my one word I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I went in with slightly lower expectations. I just found so much to enjoy about it. Um, I thought it was pretty uh, exhilarating in some places. I found a lot and Reed will be proud of this. Um, you know, I found and picked up on a lot of echoes from the very first film. I wouldn't have caught much in the way of Easter eggs from the series itself, but 
you know, definitely some thematic resonance, definitely some, you know, uh, specific notes in this film that were echoes of the first. So, you know, for me, my expectations were measured, uh, partly out of self-preservation, like, okay, be prepared for the possibility that this was just a, a box checking sort of experience. And maybe because my expectations were measured, they were, they were, you know, it, it exceeded far exceeded those because I really did just have a great time watching it. So, you know, that, that's kind of my summation of my expectations for this particular iteration of the franchise. Awesome. Well, what about you, Reed? I know you're, you're a little bit of a super fan when it comes to this material. Oh, indeed. <laughs> no, indeed. So, uh, so I have seen every installment in the Halloween franchise, all 11 of them. The first 10 I've seen at least twice. Wait, there um, are 11? This is number 11. How, the, how, Halloween 2018 is number 11. My um, so I've seen them, I've seen them all. And in fact, you could maybe say that there are 12 because part six, uh, called Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. I have seen both the theatrical cut and not only have seen, but own the producer's cut of the film, which is pretty dramatically different. Um, so yes, I've seen all of them. Uh, I have seen the original more than a dozen times. Uh, I've seen Halloween 2 and Halloween H2O probably four to six times each. And I've seen the other installments in the franchise maybe two or three times each. So this is a very, is a franchise I'm very familiar with. It's something that I am well acquainted with. The mythology, the very convoluted, very confusing, very lopsided mythology. Um, this franchise has been rebooted, restarted, uh, retconned multiple times, uh, more than any other specific horror franchise that I can recall. Um, the, because Halloween parts four through six largely are their own sort of self-contained mythology branching off from, from the first and second films. Halloween three notoriously is its own separate thing that does not involve Michael Myers at all whatsoever. Um, and then Halloween H2O kind of ignored everything except for the first two films. Halloween Resurrection followed where H2O went, at least for the first 10 minutes. And then Rob Zombie rebooted the franchise with Halloween and H2 in 2007 and 2009. And now with this film, they are completely pretending nothing exists except for the original film. So this is a, this is a franchise that has continuity all over the map. There's really no, <laughs> no real value in trying to make it all make sense. Um, but that having been said, my expectations going into this film, I don't know if any film could have lived up to the hype that I had going into this film because I am excited about Michael Myers. He's my favorite slasher. They were making a new one. I was excited to see him back on the big screen. But then they lured John Carpenter back. The original mastermind is back uh, as a producer and scoring the film. So I was like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be fantastic. This is going to be great. Then they announced that they've got Jamie Lee Curtis back. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so, I, the, I mean, you'll hear that word, oh, my goodness, say it, you know, like 17,000 times. But I was with each new announcement, I was more and more hyped. Uh, then they're bringing Nick Castle back, who was, who played the original Michael Myers, and he's going to film a few scenes. PJ Souls, uh, who was in the original film as one of Michael Myers' victims, is back. Uh, she admittedly had a very, very small part. So there was a lot of people that were coming back for this, and I was getting super pumped up, super excited. There was a lot of anticipation about it. Um, and so what it needed for me to feel like this was a worthwhile sequel was 
exactly what I think they did, which is they needed to get back to the roots of what made the original so great. They needed to get back to some core elements, stop trying to explain so much why Michael Myers does what he does, stop trying so hard to make these killings make sense or have some sort of um, authentic purpose behind them. He is a force of evil. He is a shape of evil. And so that's what, that's what they needed to do. They needed to just get back to basics. And as I mentioned earlier, I feel like that's what they successfully did. Um, now you mentioned something, uh, about, uh, like what did I think would make it successful? Um, I think that's something that, that was an element. And I think whether or not this film will be seen as satisfying to core fans will either be if they feel like this film did its original elements justice and if they got those right or for more casual fans if they brought something new and my takeaway is that i think core fans of the franchise are going to be very very happy i think casual fans of the franchise nathan is a bit of an outlier to this but i think most casual fans of the franchise might be a bit disappointed um because it doesn't really reinvent the wheel and i could see somebody not really being on board with that yeah so uh, you know I'm the casual fan as well, and I say that because I've seen one Halloween film going into this in my entire life, and it was Halloween 1, <laughs> and I think <laughs> that actually probably served me well in a lot of ways because I didn't have to worry about this continuity that has been wiped out. I, I know nothing of it. I literally right. only know of this storyline going from point A to point B, and so it worked really well for me in that regard. Um, and my expectations were simply that it was entertaining and I did want it to be a little bit scary. And I thought that I just, I just felt like there was a little bit too much focus on the humor at times to really let me get into the fear aspect of what I think of when I think of a slasher, it had the gore, it had the kills. Um, and that, was done well, but I don't know. I just, I never felt myself kind of transported into this immersive state of, of terror. Um, and that's, that's something I was expecting, but regardless, like watching this in a crowded theater with a bunch of people on an opening night who are pumped to see it, there's an energy in that room and right. it's such a great communal experience. I, I don't know that it's a movie I would watch over and over and over again at home, but it certainly was great, you know, that time around. One thing I'm really curious about, though, is this is this has annoyed me forever. And I don't know if this bothers you guys or not. But the fact that why do they call it Halloween? Why? Why? Why is is this called Halloween? Because it is so confusing to me that we have the name of a movie as a sequel that is literally the same as the movie itself. Well, can I jump in there? Uh, please do. Please. You know, it's funny, like, I, <laughs> I, and, and, and it's interesting having this, you know, recorded conversation right now, cause Reed and I, though having texted several times since respectively seeing the film have not verbally chatted about it at all. And so, Hey Reed, <laughs> we're getting some, <laughs> you know, uh, each other's thoughts here for the first time. Like there was a real way. I, and, and again, you know, I can, I can respect when, when a 
one person's experience of a film is different than another person and so on and so forth. But I was so enthralled and so much, so plugged into the experience of this particular iteration that, um, I, I could have gone like right back into it. I was so, uh, it was so fun. It was a very fun experience for me. So to your question about the title, this sort of skirts up to some thematic ideas I took away from the film too, but I feel like the movie does this interesting job of, um, see, I, I really like the fact, like if you take these two films and just pretend, which the makers of this one intend you to, but if you literally use your imagination and just say 1978, there was a film called Halloween 19, I'm sorry, 2018, there's a film called Halloween with the exact same characters 40 years later. Like if you, if you can use your imagination to sort of say, okay, this is the material I have to work with. I think there's this really cool and fascinating way they kind of, um, the word I'm going to use here is concretize concrete, like concrete. They cement this notion of not just Michael Myers as, as the shape, as he's called, like the, the name, the, 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 what we would call, call his Christian name kind of doesn't matter anymore. He is just this, this negative space that consumes everything in his path. So you've got that aspect, but I also just love that it's anchored to the, you know, if we can call it a holiday, the holiday of Halloween, something I took away that was really interesting. I mentioned earlier the symmetry of the film. I, I I had watched the original about a week before the new one. And while a decent portion of the original film takes place at night, there's a good chunk of that original film that takes place during the day. And I just thought there was something really interesting where the bulk of the active action of the new film takes place at night. And and so you you almost have this like, symmetry this sort of dialogue between these two films of the day of the 78 the night of the 2018 the youth of jamie lee the agedness of jamie lee like there's this just this really interesting dialogue that's happening and so i love that it's anchored to what we culturally or pop culturally or you know we we on our show would say, you know, spiritually speaking would call, you know, something wicked or evil, the, the associations with the holiday of Halloween. I love that they're sort of engaging that idea. Like, okay, let's, let's say there is something really terrible and awful out there. What do we do about it? And so to me, the title has this kind of poetry to it from that standpoint. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. It does. It does. Uh, I'm not sold. I, I love everything <laughs> you just said, and I love your reasoning for it, but I still don't like it because it, it. I guess it, maybe it's annoying to me as someone that writes about it or podcasts about it because every time you you talk about this movie now, you have to quantify it or qualify it. You can't just say Halloween. You have to say Halloween parentheses 2018, right? You have to be very specific about which Halloween you're talking about, and that can be frustrating when you're just kind of talking about it in casual conversation or putting it in the, you know, writing out a title on Twitter or something, I, you know, right now it doesn't matter, but five years from now, if we're talking about Halloween, we have to be very specific about which one. Um, 
Well, how do you feel about uh, well? And I guess they have their sub their sub the subtitles for all of the Star Wars films. But I was also thinking about mm-hmm. like now that 2018 exists, the 1978 one is probably just going to be dubbed the original. And that's probably how it's going to be, you know, the original Halloween that will just act as a kind of a prefix for Halloween versus. So you've got the original Halloween 1978, the Rob Zombie Halloween 2007, and then just Halloween 2018. Now, I don't mind it because stepping out of film and into the music world, there are multiple artists, not, you know, a ton of them. There are multiple artists that release numerous albums simply under the title of their name. Peter Gabriel's first four albums, I think Weezer does this a lot, where just the album is just their name. This is the new album by this person. And so they come in fan circles to be referred to by some other moniker like the Blue Album or the one with the car on it or something like that. Um, So I think that that will happen over time. It does not bother me in IOTA because of how it links to the original that this carries the same sort of formalized title because I think a colloquial title will emerge over time. What that'll be, Hmm. I don't know. We'll see. But I think a colloquial title by fans and critics will eventually emerge. Maybe that'll be applied, as I mentioned, to the first one, and the first one will simply be referred to as the original and this one as Halloween. I don't know how it'll play out, but I think that will adjust culturally over time. That's fascinating. That's good stuff. See, this is why I bring you guys on because you, <laughs> you can give me a reason to not hate that title when <laughs> I was just stewing about it for the last week instead. Um, <laughs> well, moving on here, I want to talk about some thematic stuff. And so the original film is well known for kind of having some things to say about teenage sexuality. I mean, that's how we start, right? Is Michael killing his sister in the midst of uh, a sexual escapade between her and her boyfriend. Well, I guess they're not in the midst technically of it uh, at the time. That'd be really awkward. She's just but, brushing her hair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, it's gone down. Right. And so I'm wondering if you guys picked up anything kind of meaningful here that would be a follow up to the conversation of what Halloween is trying to say about teenage sexuality, e- even if it's not, a message, but like, how does it work in this universe as it pertains to Michael? Um, I mean, I, I think clearly, like you said, Aaron, the original, if we'll call it that, um, you know, has a, a heavy, you know, that, that is a heavy aspect to it. And again, for me, as I have had these two films reverberating around in my head the last two weeks, like I said, I can't kind of get away from what feel, what feels like bookends. I, I personally don't watch this new one and find anything other than just normal kind of, um, I don't feel like it overemphasizes or even really strongly emphasizes teenage sexuality, uh, any more than just your standard kind of movie. Like, you know, um, the, the, the boyfriend and Allison kind of have that breakup. But that's kind of just sort of incidental and propels her character to the next phase. And then the other friend comes on to her and expresses interest. These things are not at all similar in the way they're delivered in the original film. To me, the better, the better lens is this sort of youth and age idea. You know, this youthfulness, this sexuality of the 78 version versus the sort of mature, kind of delivery mechanism of who Jamie Lee is, who she is or who Lori is 
in relation to her own daughter, in relation to her granddaughter. I just think there's some really neat echoes there um, where I would say for me, this new one really doesn't care much to say anything about sexuality in the way the original one did, at least that's sort of my takeaway there. Yeah, I would echo a similar thought because I've often this, I don't want to go too heavily into this, but I think that the elements of, or the commentary on teenage sexuality, that the first one is often accused is the wrong word, but that it is, you know, there's often laid at the feet of the original Halloween. Um, I know point blank that it was not the intention of the filmmakers for that to be there. Um, I also, to a degree, ascribe to the philosophy that once a material has been put out into the world, then it belongs more to the audience than the filmmaker. But I, I do feel like the filmmaker's intention should be considered when assessing commentary. And I know for a fact that Carpenter and the filmmakers were not trying to make a statement about teenage sexuality in the original. It was completely accidental. Um, that having been said, I feel like they almost overcorrected in this one. Uh, particularly a lot of Myers killings are random. They're utterly random. Um, and don't have, and almost actively don't have much to do with the people who are like the people engaging in a kind of, you know, uh, sexual dalliance of any sort. And I noticed that, you know, in, in the original, uh, you have, uh, one, you know, the, his sister has sex. And then the, uh, in the, you know, night he came home, the main plot of the original film, uh, his first victim is merely on her way to a, you know, a tryst, if you will. And then he kills two other lovers. Um, and so that just kind of how this conversation about sexuality emerged culturally as people were sort of assessing that. Um, in this one, the most you have is two, uh, teens who are not engaging full bore into, into sexual activity. Um, there is a sensuality to what they're doing, no question about it. Um, but it is definitely to a lesser degree than the behavior in the original film. And most of his victims, particularly the victims at the Strode home, um, have nothing whatsoever to do with any of that. They are, you know, prior victims of Myers that he's following up with. So I feel like as a comment, I feel like they are almost trying to almost overcorrect the ship of, hey, you guys picked up on all this teenage sexuality in the first one. That's really not why Myers is doing what he's doing. So we're going to infuse uh, intentional randomness, intentional other sort of catalysts for his killing to subvert that conversation. At least that was one of my takeaways from it. Yeah, I, I felt very similar to that, Reed. I thought that the babysitter moment uh, with her boyfriend coming over was an intentional setup to make us feel, you know, like that was the trope that we were going to see was babysitter calls over her boyfriend. They are there to have right. sex. And then Michael kills them because they're having sex. And it kind of intentionally goes around that. Um, right. Doesn't do that, which I liked, but it's funny that you brought up the randomness because I also picked up on that. I mean, the gas station is another example. His goal seems to be to get the mask out of the trunk. Yes. But he kills literally like everyone in this gas station area in order to accomplish that one task. And I, I don't know that that was necessary. Now, I, maybe, maybe not, but I also felt like there was a lot more randomness to his killing in this one as well. 
Um, maybe, maybe that speaks more to his, you know, the idea of this evil. True, too, that maybe he's not motivated by something specifically uh, as much as he was in the past. But when, it, when we do talk about like what he was intentionally doing, we so the main theme here is that this idea that Lori has been planning her entire life for this moment to get revenge and to rid herself of the fear that Michael was putting inside of her growing up as a child and as an, and into her adulthood. So I guess my question for you guys is, do you think that it's worth foregoing the present to prepare for potential danger in the future? How do you feel about Lori's decision? Um, I mean, I, I found a lot interesting about the presentation of Lori in this iteration. And, and I, I don't know, I don't know that I think the notion of foregoing the present is justified, but I do find something interesting about the idea of, I'm going to use it as metaphor, but the idea of preparedness for kind of the threats of the world, if you will. Um, you know, like the specificity of the film is a Michael Myers character who has sort of haunted, uh, like a specter Laurie Strode for 40 years. Yes. But there's also the, the notion of to be blithe or to be, you know, sort of, sort of mm, indifferent to or, naive to the threats of the world or the the threats of one's circumstance um i think is an interesting element the movie's trying to play with in the sense that yes i think there's some potential error on the part of the character of lori to have sacrificed so much of her active present life as it occurred but at the same time I think there's an interesting aspect to this, this metaphorical idea of, you know, and like uh, Aaron, I think, are you, I think you're a parent as well, but this notion, even as a, as parents that you have to kind of play zone defense with the world, right? Like you've got to have this like cognizance of all the things that could happen while not letting yourself be overwhelmed and at the same time, enjoy the presence of the moment with your family and with those you love, that kind of thing. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but, um, Oh, it does. It does. Okay. Yeah. I just, I just found, I guess all I'm trying to say is yes, I would agree with the notion that maybe there's mistake. If you, if we can use that word on the part of Lori for having, for her actions, having in this case, pushed away her now adult daughter. But I do think there's, if, if it's possible to separate that, from what she's actually doing, which is just kind of fortifying herself, uh, fortifying herself in the face of what she literally knows is out there is kind of an interesting dichotomy that I kind of found. But it's, I guess that's where I, I wonder about this is because is it really out there? I mean, yes, it's, it's in existence, but he's been locked in prison for 40 years. He's not escaped for 40 years. And realistically, you've, essentially thrown away your life and your relationships for 40 years totally yes. in order to prepare for this. And does the film kind of like give that a pass because of the ending? Cause I feel like, you know, I mean, 
I don't know how I would do it differently. So I should, I should state that up front because I'm not sure that I have an answer for that. But it it does seemingly give us that, haha, wink and a nod, perfect little bow at the ending of this big conflict. I agree. I, I agree with you. There is a degree of willing suspension of disbelief of, you know, on the creative end of, okay, how do we, <laughs> how do we keep Lori, how do we keep some measure of a realistic human character attached to this story for 40 years? So I, I'm with you that you kind of have to go a little bit with where they're taking you and, and just kind of accept it or, or not. But, you know, I, I am with you. It's, it's, uh, I won't call it a thin limb, but I do know what you're saying. You know, um, you've got to kind of just buy that there's some truth to the potential that this character has been stealing herself for a four decade <laughs> confrontation yeah. that she really didn't have any assurance was actually going to happen. Um, right. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. What about you, Reed? I, so it is a complicated question to answer it directly. I, you asked, was it worth the preparedness? Like what she put her child through growing up to, to prepare her for this the whole life. Um, my short answer is probably not if what she wanted was a thriving relationship with her daughter. If what she wanted, and it seems like this is what Lori wanted, was for her daughter to survive, even if that meant she didn't get to be a part of her life, then Lori got what she wanted. And I think that's really the debate is what do you want? Do you want their survival or do you want their presence? And I feel like I was really appreciative that the film did not overly justify Lori's intention. It really dug in on she is a trauma victim. And while she is absolutely definitively sort of, uh, if I, if I can use this word, then forgive me if I can't, she's a certifiable badass in this movie. And if, if, that fact is, were the only thing they focused in on. If she always knew the right thing to do, if she always, you know, even with all of her preparedness, if she knew every sort of motion to take, I would have found that unbelievable. But instead, what we get is a, is a character who falls apart authentically. There's no reason to think that that was pretense or show when she falls apart at the dinner table. And she's really struggling. She's struggling with alcohol. She's struggling with uh, isolation and agoraphobia to a degree. And so she is a flawed character. Now, in the same time, she happens to be correct about the potential of a threat, but she lost 40 years. I mean, in this iteration, she lost 40 years. That was really all about the potential of this return of Michael Myers. And I do think the film is starting an exploration of she happened to be correct, but was it worth it? And, uh, and I don't know. Part of my takeaway was that, uh, yeah, you can, you can be correct and it still may not be worth all that you put into it. Um, yeah, because now she essentially has to start over. She's got, I mean, yeah. the film leaves them with justification. They're together on the back of that truck. So they, the, the relationship can start now, but look at all the time that they lost in that, in that regard. And, and I think the film, is not necessarily, at least for me, it wasn't trying to make an easy through line of it being, yes, it was worth it. No, it wasn't. I think it is a complicated thing. And I appreciated that the film made it complicated. I agree. I agree. Absolutely with that. I I do like that. It doesn't give us a a completely perfect answer to it. Um, 
and it, it the problem is like it's it's not the type of movie that you can then take into the drama territory once the big big bad has been vanquished and right. <laughs> carry forth that conversation right that's not how horror movies work um it's a wholly different type of film at that point but it is fascinating and i i love that it gives us that question to think about um because it is i mean you have families that realistically do this in real you know in their everyday lives people who don't drive because there's a chance that they could get in a car crash right Um, Right. and what are you giving up in order to protect yourself from this potential thing that might be out there um that may or may not ever come uh, whether you're right or wrong so yeah it, it is definitely an interesting conversation one of the other big things that stuck out to me was uh, this topic that's kind of explored through the Dr. Sartain character. He, I'll admit I did not love his arc personally because it felt almost a little bit too convenient when he flips um, and not something that I was – I didn't feel like it was kind of earned in in many ways for me, but he's, he's got this obsession with Michael and with learning about him. And we do see that several times uh, throughout the early film. And ultimately he commits murder himself um, because he wants to understand what the feeling is for Michael that compels him to continue killing. And so I wondered what you guys thought about that. What is the movie trying to say about this idea of ultimate evil? Well, it's funny. I think there's a way in which, this this is one area where I would ding the film and yet at the same time say maybe they're a little closer to quote-unquote reality than the original. Like, I think Sartain is clearly meant to just be a subversion of the original Loomis. Uh, Loomis, who kind of exits the original film, a sort of hero, um, but who has a very similar uh, history with Michael Myers. You know, he had been his doctor for X amount of years, had worked closely with him and yet had not been sort of, if we can say it tainted by that experience. And so Sartain is clearly from a pure, just kind of scripting storytelling standpoint, them saying, Ooh, what if we take the Loomis notion and kind of turn it on its head and make him actually have been affected by that. So on the one hand, I would say the execution of that idea doesn't totally work for me though. I do respect the effort. Um, because I do think there is something about it, it, it's almost it's I uh, maybe I would disagree. I don't think it's telegraphed like beating you in the head with it. But I do think there's very little surprising when he actually turns. Um, so from that standpoint, it kind of makes sense. This notion that they're maybe setting forth that you know, in ensconcing oneself, engrossing oneself too closely to what the film more or less certifiably calls the essence of evil is going to affect you in a certain way. Um, it doesn't totally work for me when it happens because it does feel pretty, you know, um, expected. Though, admittedly, it's pretty creepy when he puts on that mask because the mask has become a totem of of that evil essence. I mean, you never see Michael's face. That's very intentional, um, clearly. Um, and so the mask is that sort of costume, that sort of, I'm applying this thing that is going to channel some of that 
evil energy. So, so there are elements about that I like as far as just its execution. I didn't love it, but I do think there's something fascinating going on with that character that was at least attempting to do something a little different than the original did. Reed? I think that, so these are somewhat half-formed thoughts, but in answering the question, you know, what do you think the film is saying about the idea of evil? The thing that I can't escape is I think the film is exploring the idea that evil is attractive um, and that it is compelling of itself. We, we are, it's not only mysterious and, and, and inexplicable, but we are very compelled to approach why it exists at all. And let's not lose sight of the fact that that is played out in uh, violent ways with Dr. Sartain, but also the film starts with two podcasters who are exploring this conversation. Uh, they are exploring what is happening in the mind of Michael Myers. What is this all about? They're desperate for him to speak. Multiple people in the, in the film are desperate for him to speak. And I think they're seeking some kind of understanding of the notion of evil and uh it, let's also not forget that the one there is another character that has been obsessed for 40 years about killing and that's Lori and she's been obsessed with killing Michael for different reasons but she has absolutely been obsessed with the notion that she can destroy him i mean she's you know she says the she says in the the thing she says i've been praying that he would escape and he says why would you do that and she says so i can kill him and yes you know dr sartain wants to understand kind of what it feels like to be michael um but i think there is this idea of that level of power is compelling and is interesting and is fascinating to us the power to give and take life um, but I also think the film is making some commentary about the, um, yeah, just about the nature of how you unleash this thing. You can't control it. Uh, going back, you know, far into literature and even into mythology and talking about the Pandora's box idea that you open it up thinking that you'll be able to steer and guide it or at least be able to observe and dissect it and unfortunately just wind up being consumed by it. And I think that's what we see in the character of Dr. Sartain. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, as far as like, I didn't in the moment see his turn coming, but in reflection feel like I probably should have, <laughs> um, yeah. even going back to in the bus scene where he, his first question, which could be taken as a kind of a precautionary thing, but his first question when the police officer shows up is he's like, did he escape? And it didn't dawn on me until after he turns and he's like, Oh, he was asking that to make sure that it worked, not yeah. to make sure, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, it, maybe that was just me sort of giving myself over to the film and not picking up on obvious clues it was handing me. But, but, uh, but yeah, I, I do feel like the character is, as Nathan mentioned, meant to be sort of a, you know, a subversion of Dr. Loomis, um, also still kind of exploring this notion, but coming to a, the exact opposite conclusion of Dr. Loomis, which is, we need to contain it and ultimately possibly need to destroy it. He, his was, we need to understand it. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it, just a bit of a different take. Yeah. I think it's a, it's, I love that you brought up the podcasters because I think that that's the part that I latched onto the most because it's, you know, on one hand, it's a modernization of the story that brings it into the current day, um, and relates it to our present day world. But that's a very real 
thing right now is this fascination with true crime. If you look up right now, what is the biggest podcast genre that is downloaded? It's true crime. It's things oh, like everybody. Theory, yeah. Right. That's what people want to see. They want to watch making a murderer. They want to understand why other human beings think the way they do and, and can be this evil. So it makes perfect sense. It's very believable. And that helped uh, make this better for me because it took you know, a lot of slasher genre stuff. You get some supernatural elements to things that really you have to take it in the fantastical manner. You can't, it's not grounded, but this feels much more grounded because of things like that. Um, and yeah. that helped me, you know, I, I liked that it was, I don't think the film ever really tried to make a statement on the idea of evil. Like you guys are saying, I think it's just more about bringing up the fact that, Hey, why look, take a, take a look inside and realize that we could all become Dr. Sartain if we let ourselves get pushed to the limit too much and don't control it. So how did you feel about, I guess, compare this to the originals? Like, how do you feel it connected to the originals? Do you think that it gave it any sense of urgency in continuing the story at all? Um, well, and, and yeah, I mean, I, clear, there's there's some through lines that have stayed with me just in examining these two so closely to each other. Um, what, and I think that's a good word, Aaron, uh, that's something that illustrated that real profoundly to me. And Reed, you, you, you as our, uh, encyclopedia Brown here <laughs> uh, can, can correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the score in the opening credit sequence of the new one, um, it's pretty up tempo, right? I mean, it's, it's got a sort of haste to it. Um, mm -hmm. at least to my recollection of the original that wasn't there. Um, and you know, I've mentioned more than once at this point, this sort of symmetry, this sort of echo, this sort of, uh, uh, dialogue. I think the original is having with the new or the new is having with the original. Um, I just think there's a really fascinating conversation there that even the youth and age idea that I didn't even think about until this conversation. Um, but I think it's manifest in several ways. One is yes, the opening credit sequence. One, that's just a, a really badass score that's happening right there. You're like, Oh man, this is fun. This is cool. <laughs> um, and it's, it's kind of exciting, but it's up tempo and it's fast. Uh, for any listener or uh, I think Aaron, you mentioned having seen the original one at, at some point, but the, the original has a pace to it that is very methodical and very kind of, I'm hesitant to say slow, but it is very paced. That's a kind of a good word there. It's very paced. It's very, it has a rhythm, but that rhythm is slow. Um, Reed and I, when we explicitly talked about the first film almost two years ago at this point, that came up, this notion of Michael's uh, locomotion is very measured. It's very intentional. Um, he kind of doesn't move unless he, I suppose, wants to, but it's, it's literally standing still or walking. There's no, there's no haste to it. There's no speed to his movement. Um, and so if you kind of look at that slow aspect of the original and then this new one that starts at least the credit sequence with that up tempo score, it just kind of placed, it's like the metronome just started kick, you know, ticking back and forth faster. And so you've got that part. Well, even to me, 
the way Michael is presented. And specifically, I'm going to highlight the two one take sequences, uh, single take sequences, um, that are really, really awesome. The first is when he gets the hammer. Um, so he, he goes down the alley between the houses. He grabs the hammer, enters the back of the house, bludgeons the woman off screen. That is immediately followed by the crib baby sequence. That's real harrowing that we're all nervous about. And then he kind of skips over that out of the house. Well, so that coupled with the, um, that's almost just kind of cooler in its execution because the camera doesn't move at all. When he leans forward and looks into the window and you see his reflection of the mask and then he goes to the right off screen and then he's pacing alongside the house and comes up through the back and kills that girl who's looking out the window. So those two scenes just really highlighted for me a, a haste to his movement. It felt like the character of Michael was moving faster. So the score, Michael's, you know, specific movements and then Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, or Lori, um, again, harping on this word of urgency, there is, there's something about the way she engages with the world and the way she engages with the people around her. Again, let's, let's, let's at least uh, agree to buy into the notion that there's a shred of believability that for four decades, she's, at, you know, sort of prepped for this thing. Uh, so I just turned 39 about two weeks ago and there's this weird uh, psychology around 40 is approaching. Um, you know, life has about it an air of urgency and not just life itself, but the things that are important to you, right? Like, Hey, I want my kids to feel this way about me and about life and about their home. Hey, I want my spouse to feel this way about me and about life and about their home. Hey, people I interact with, I want them to feel this particular way. The, the urgency of those experiences has become a bit more, mm, you know, the, the metronome is moving a little faster. So I just felt like there was this really interesting sort of uh, uh, pace and rhythm to the new one that really spoke to me of like, this is what, it, again, ignore that it's 40 years of prepping for a serial killer. Let's just say it's you're 40 years old. And it starts to dawn on you and, and solidify for you the things that are really valuable and important. Hey, I really want you to know this thing about how I feel about you. Hey, I really want you to know this thing about how I think, uh, uh, the best, the best version of what your life can look like. Again, I'm putting a rosy spin on it, but that really spoke to me, this urgency, this sense of let me, let me do what I can to connect to the people around me about the things that are important. Um, again, I know I'm, I'm sort of intentionally setting aside the potential unhealthy aspects of Lori's behavior in favor of saying it really spoke to me just that, that urgency, that sort of last ditch way of trying to connect to these people that at least in this case, she's connected to by blood already. Anyway, that's a, that's a long winded sort of way of addressing that question, but those, those elements really kind of stood out to me this time. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, I, you know, I love the score. I like that you mentioned the score. I thought uh, that stuck so out good. to me. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, anytime you have somebody who's going to remix their score, uh, it's a little bit nerve wracking because you're like, uh, yeah, the, when you take something iconic, can you actually make it new and fresh? But it was used in several different ways and kind of tweaked. And gosh, it was, it was fantastic. It was, it was awesome. 
Um, and you're right. It definitely in, is, increases the intensity and the, or the urgency of what is going on as well. Um, I, there's several lines in this film that are really great. And I know Reed, you had told me offline that one that you really liked was there at the end when, uh, she says, it's not a cage, it's a trap. What, oh, made, boy. what made that stand out so much for you? So when it's solidified for me, obviously that is meant to be, and, and in the moment watching the movie, it was just a great sort of twist to what you had thought was going on. Uh, it was also a culmination thematically and relationally between Laurie and her daughter of, uh, you know, had a lot of significance there. But, um, one of the things that I picked up on was the fact that in all of these, in, in all of these particular killings. So I'm going to stretch for something here. Y'all bear with me for a beat. Um, almost every victim, every victim that I'm thinking of at the moment, uh, by Michael Myers, uh, is confined. It's confined somewhere. Um, it's either confined by a house or a room or a bathroom stall or something. Um, there are a couple of exceptions when it gets to, um, the Strode house near the end, but, uh, even that you could say they are kind of confined by the woods and they're, and they're out sort of isolated to themselves. Um, and I was really thinking about this notion of, of just cages, but also, uh, Michael Myers is so all about that mask and even Dr. Sartain having to put on the mask. And here's what stood out to me is when, uh, this is going to sound so cheesy. Y'all just, y'all just bear with me. But, <laughs> but when she said, it's not a cage, it's a trap. Um, I was, I was thinking about that. I was like, wow, the, the cage was masked as a trap. And so, um, and so I was basically trying to sort of ascertain what, what was the film trying to say by that to say, okay, well, the, the, there, it was hiding to a sense. And that's what really masks do. They hide you. Um, they present a sort of false persona really while there's something more substantive and potentially more malicious underneath the surface of that. And so in thinking about this idea, I was thinking about, you know, how everybody in the film uh, again, they're hiding behind, uh, not all of them are aware that they're, they're hiding, but they're kind of hiding in this sort of cage, whether that cage would be, you know, Lori's self-imposed isolation. Uh, Michael Myers has been confined for 40 years in an actual institution. And then even when he escapes that, he hides behind a mask. Um, and then the, the podcasters are kind of exploring this, they want to explore the idea of what makes Michael Myers tick. And then as they say, unbiased fashion, um, but they're really kind of hiding behind that facade and who knows what they're trying to do. They're trying to provoke some sort of fame or celebrity or get some sort of recognition for this. Um, and then Dr. Sartain is hiding behind the illusion of wanting to heal and help or, you know, uh, completely cure Michael. Well, meanwhile, he's just interested in unleashing the beast as it were. Um, so there's all these kinds of hidden notions and, Again, this is not formulated as a complete bumper sticker sort of thought, but I got to thinking about, yeah, there's, there's all these kinds of ways in which our own self, uh, our little sort of confinements, uh, the very first thing that we see of, uh, you know, uh, this notion that Michael has been confined and he's been in a cage and then he is set free or unleashed. Uh, but really, 
even in his unleashing, he's still trapped by these impulses. He's still trapped by a propulsive notion to kill, by a propulsive need to kill. And, uh, and I feel like Lori herself has just spent all of this time because of what Michael did to her trapped in this sort of, you know, cage trapped in this sort of, um, again, the self-imposed isolation. And so it just, it just was striking at me this idea of, of cages and masks and, and cages masquerading as traps. And, and, uh, and, and it just fascinated me. It just really made it feel like the film was scratching. Again, I feel like this film is not terribly interested in easy or cheap bumper sticker statements as much as it is in sort of raising or evoking feelings, raising or evoking senses of, um, you know, exploratory thought. And, uh, and that was something that it evoked in me is just this idea of all of the cages that we have, some of them self-imposed and how we are trapped and, and are frequently hiding behind our own masks in a sense. And, uh, it just fascinated me that, that whole idea. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. Uh, you know, and, and at Halloween, no less where everyone's right. wearing a mask, you know, that I picked up on that. I love that that thematically works so well in this. And for some reason it hit me pretty hard in this one that, that everybody is kind of trying to be someone different on that night. Yeah. Um, as it is anyway. <laughs> it's funny though that you got so, so much out of that. I love it because for me, it was really hard to get past the fact that when she said is a, it's a, it's not a cage, it's a trap. All I could picture is Admiral Akbar. That's awesome. Right beside her, which kind of took me out of the like deep moment. So uh, I applaud you helping me bring that back all to something more in depth. <laughs> no problem. Well, uh, normally we roll to our connecting point about now. Is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up or mention that stuck out to you about this film before we do that? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Cool. Well, this is the time where we like to go over that one scene that kind of stuck out the most to us or the one that we emotionally connected to or resonated with the most. So Nathan, uh, we're going to, we've been having you go first all night. So why don't we just continue that trend? What was I, your connection? I do point? like consistency. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I really dug. So, um, it's a moment, but it connects to an earlier moment in the film. So on a technical level, it's not explicitly one scene, but the very end of the film, once, uh, Lori and, uh, her daughter and granddaughter have escaped the house that they, you know, kind of incinerate and at least ostensibly with Michael still inside. Um, it ends with them running out to the road. A truck is passing. They kind of run to the passenger's side and say, help us in this line is kind of the, uh, to my recollection is the last line of the film. And then it ends with this image of the three of them in the truck bed and why that really felt like something significant to me. Um, again, building on the original film here, there's a, one of probably the most haunting scenes, um, in almost any of the films that Reed and I have covered and, and of the horror films I've encountered, there's a, a scene in the original that they, explicitly echo in the new one, but, um, of Lori, once Lori, teenage Lori discovers the sort of kill box that Michael has set up in this house where he's killed all these people, she runs to a neighbor's house and there's this really haunting moment where she's banging on their front door, just pleading and yelling. I can't remember if she's explicitly stating the word help or if it's let me in or please, or some ver version of those words. Um, the neighbor's with the porch light on, look out the window, see this teenage girl yelling for help, turn off the porch light, 
and and walk away clearly actively choosing to not help her so so bookmark that well then in this new one a scene right in the middle of the movie when Lori has um shown up at her daughter's home i can't remember the daughter's character's name but it's judy greer is the actress but um and and she's basically saying michael's out he's back y'all are idiots let's go and Judy Greer says this line that in the moment feels a little throwaway until that final scene I'm building to here. She says something to the effect of mom, the world's not this dark, terrible place. It's rosy and beautiful and full of wonder or something like that. I'm definitively paraphrasing, but she's setting up this juxtaposition. You, you view the world as this terrible, dark place. I view the world as this beautiful, rosy place. You're wrong. I'm right. So then the, there's actually a callback. Uh, when Allison is fleeing, um, where she is pounding on a door and help, you know, yelling for help. So it's an intentional call out to the original film. But the way the new movie ends, I feel like has this interesting validation of Judy Greer and, uh, Laurie Strode of, of saying, because you've got this notion of, of someone in peril seeking help. Um, and the original movie ends with this real kind of despairing notion of the boogeyman uh, that, and it's got this real sort of um, ominous ending. There's nothing, if we can use the word hopeful about the end of the original film. And yet the, the end of this new one where people in peril are seeking aid and not finding it, they run to the road, say the line, help us and receive the help thereafter. I don't know. I just found it a really lovely, uh, hopeful note, uh, for a movie interested in engaging of what a literal evil might look like in the world. So, so that was something that really spoke to me, um, kind of validating the worldview of Lori and the perspective of Judy Greer. I just thought it was a really interesting takeaway. That's awesome, man. That's the exact kind of thing that, uh, we like to see picked up on. Uh, Good. You, you nailed it. That was great. <laughs> Happy to oblige. Reed, where did you come down on uh, your connecting point? So mine is a moment that initially I, I thought was kind of stupid, and then I really <laughs> softened towards it. Because um, my moment is when Lori emerges from the basement to go hunting Michael. Uh, now, first, when she made that decision to go up into the house and begin to hunt Michael down, I initially thought she was making this a very dumb mistake. I was like, this is like a real old school horror film error. Like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go up and go after the killer. You know, that, that is, that is how you're going to just go down. But as the scene progressed, she's checking every room and foreshadowing the trap thing. Then she, you know, lock, she presses a button and like gridlocks down a room. Right. And as she's doing that, my sense of suspense rose um, and I began to really get on board with what she was doing, which was hunting him. She was, she was now the predator and she was finding, she was seeking him out, uh, and he was now the prey. And ultimately that decision had cost her tremendously in her life. We've talked volumes about that already. Um, but in those moments, I became very invested in this idea of the victim 
uh, flipping the script and now becoming the pursuer and basically saying, you know, I won't be pushed around anymore. I won't hide anymore. Uh, now I'm, now I'm coming after you. And particularly when it reached that moment, there were so many moments where she was like two or three moments where she was, uh, poking at the closets. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's great. Because in the original, they have that iconic moment where she's stuck in a closet and Michael comes after her. And then now in this one, she's doing the same thing. And they were really, piece by piece flipping us around to where everything that Michael was in the original film, now Laurie was becoming. And uh, and I just found that very fascinating, the fact that that's what, to her, this had all been about, about I will no longer be the running scared victim. I am going to be the one who is armed, the one who has the plan. I am, I am going to be prepared. Um, and again, that really just all the more invested me in what she was doing. I think a big part of what invested me, as I mentioned before, was just that was one of the most suspenseful elements of the movie to me was that whole sequence where she's wandering around up, upstairs. And, uh, I just, I knew he was up there somewhere. She knew he was up there somewhere. We could see the blood. But I didn't know when he was going to emerge, and so I just became really edge-of-my-seat invested in how that was going to play out. So that was my connecting moment. Good stuff, man. And, yeah, brilliant, brilliant decision to uh, have a room full of mannequins in your house that you have supposedly right? set up to be a trap. Not sure that that totally worked out as a, as a smart decision there. Um, <laughs> I think they uh, they let themselves and their designing production design team get a little – to uh, away with themselves there. But uh, for me, you know, we haven't really talked about this scene at all, but my favorite moment, my connecting point is the moment that Allison is babysitting Julian. It's this whole, this whole, it's this whole scene that goes down um, with her and he, him. And it starts with this amazing amount of banter between the two of them. They're joking about smoking weed and he's calling her out. She's talking about his browser history and it's so perfect. And it, it's because it reminded me of when I was young and I had a babysitter at Julian's age. I remember vividly still being a fifth grader who was babysat by an eighth grade cheerleader. And I, I mean, I was in love, Samantha blonde. Like I remember her, I, like I don't remember much about that time in my life, but I remember Samantha and I felt very much like Julian did and they threaten each other and it's, it's so much fun. But what connected the most for me is just how sweet their relationship is when she goes up with him, she tucks him into bed and we, we get to see that they actually really care for one another. It's tender and it's a different kind of relationship. It's not the typical babysitter who just is frustrated and angry and like only there. And she's like, she doesn't want to be there babysitting. Right. Right. She truly cares about Julian. And so it makes it so much more meaningful to me. Um, when instead of dying caught in the act of some terrible deed where she's having sex with her boyfriend, she dies because she is up there protecting the child that she is babysitting. And that's such a different twist on this this whole babysitter aspect that we see in slasher films, I thought right. it was really refreshing. And the performance of Julian is awesome. I mean, that kid hits every joke note perfectly. His face is wonderful. And I, I loved it. I thought that this relationship right there in the middle of the film really kind of solidified my emotional connection to it. So, But I, it I, think, you, I think you make a good point, Aaron, that 
again, to me, there's a lot of strength to this new film. And one of them is that sequence and not just like on its own, as in look at this really good scene. I mean, it almost redeems the, the murdered babysitter trope. It's, it's basically taking what in the, cause in the original film, <laughs> other than Lori, those babysitters don't care about them kids. I mean, they just don't. They're, they're, they're just, <laughs> they're props. They're kind of set decoration. The kids who are actually in the film have nothing to do and no personality, which, you know, I mean, we could say is just sort of the way it was presented back then. But you could also say in hindsight, it's like, well, the, you know, there's no characterization to those little people. And that is a missed opportunity that this movie really takes advantage of. Like you said, Julian is a really uh, uh, fleshed out little kid who's a really a lot of fun. Their relationship is great. In no way did it feel like what some of the original sort of slasher films in terms of the exploitation of, you know, the kind of teenage sexuality, whatever. It didn't feel like that at all. It was almost just an incidental thing. This is a babysitter sequence. Oh, oh, I really like these characters. They're a lot of fun. I don't know. I really, I'm with you. I really, really dug that sequence. Awesome. Well, I am glad. I'm glad that we all agreed on that. And it's always fun when we have different ones. So that was, that was good too. Um, well, guys, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, it's nice to get to talk about a horror film every once and again. Uh, Patrick is not a fan as our listeners know very well. So <laughs> we only get to cover kind of low key horror <laughs> and, uh, and that's okay. That's okay. But it's fun to get to dive into one more in depth with you guys. So one last time before we go, where can people find you guys on social media if they want to connect with you and where can they find your podcast? For me personally, I am on Twitter at, um, at the Nathan Rouse. <laughs> I had to check to remember what my Twitter handle was. Um, so I am at the Nathan Rouse. Um, I'll let Reed speak for his individual persona, but the podcast we do, which is again, the fear of God, um, on Twitter is at the fear of God. We also have a Facebook page. We have a Facebook group. It's a lot of fun. You should come check it out. Um, we do explicitly discuss primarily just the horror genre. And you, yes. And you can find me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. Um, and, uh, yes. And then basically the two best ways to reach me are through Twitter at Reed Lackey and through the show, through the various outlets. Awesome. And uh, listeners, you can always find me on Twitter at Feelin' Film. And you can find me in our Facebook group, which we always invite everyone to come and be a part of, where the conversation is going on all day long, every day, seven days a week. Next week, we will be having two episodes for you. Mid Midweek, we're going to drop our October donor pick episode, like I talked about, the low-key kind of horror that's going to be on the monster squad that was voted by our donors. We're excited for you to hear that when we've already recorded it before Patrick went on his cruise. And so I think you're going to enjoy that a lot. We had a good time discussing it. And then for our Halloween episode next week on our main main line, we're going to be covering upgrade. That will be our version of a horror movie. And I think that will suffice. And I think uh, if you haven't seen it yet, now you've got a, a good reason to go do so. It's a fantastic film and we would love to encourage you to do that. Then you can come back and listen to our conversation. Again, thank you guys from the Fear of God podcast for being here. I really appreciate it. Listeners, as always, stay positive and keep feeling